This is Talk is Sheep, a podcast by the Wild Sheep Society of British Columbia. Come along as we take conversations that matter to you into the high alpine. Steve. That's different. Normally it's like that. Uh, totally uh, uh, you, <laughs> you threw me off my game. Like what's going on there? What's going on? That's weird. Uh, well, it's the winter. It's this deep freeze. And uh, for you guys, especially it's, we got snow here in, on, in the, on the Island, uh, but it's at least sunny and eight degrees. Just saying um, eight degrees. What's uh, that? Omer called this morning from uh, precision optics. And he said, uh, he said some very, bad things about the cold in Cornell right now. He said it was very <laughs> yeah. cold. I'm not going to, I'm not going to emulate what he said because it's not suitable for anyone really. Anybody, <laughs> anybody, <laughs> but uh, yeah. yeah, it's cold. Yeah. They're getting more snow and cold than we are here. Is what exactly. I'm hearing from friends down there. Yeah. And okay. couldn't happen to nicer people. <laughs> uh, cool. So this is episode 57. Um, it's been a few days since we had our last drop, but um, appreciate everyone for listening and tuning in. Uh, appreciate everyone sharing it, getting the message out and helping grow our footprint and telling our conservation story. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was a fun episode. We're going to talk about that in a second. A little bit of housekeeping stuff. Um, what do we want to start off with? We did the membership drive. So yes. um, very cool. Uh, some great donations from Stone Glacier and Canis. Um, we did a giveaway there. Our first prize went to Marcus Lund out of Rosedale. Elijah Swires out of Prince George was second place, and Tyler Rybachuk out of Sparwood. All three were life members. I think we sold out, uh, we signed up 80, 82 new members. Yeah, some, something, something crazy like that. It was awesome. And then 22 life members upgraded. So uh, thank you to everyone for joining our organization. Really, we. You know, our lifeblood of the society is our membership. I honestly am very biased, but I think we have the best members in the world. Uh, I really believe that people are just stepping up day in and day out. Um, and we're really, really, really lucky to have the membership we do and the support they give us. Oh, no arguments there. And I, yeah, it's not really a bias thing. It, I wasn't sure until I joined and then I, then you can actually see it. It's, it's not just, uh, talk. It's, uh, there's a lot of work being done on the ground, right? And like the Fraser River Project, uh, you just did a video about the other day, and that just shows case in point that it's there, there's actual conservation dollars in uh, in motion there on the ground. That was such a cool one. So that Fraser River Binghorn Project, that's kind of our our flagship project, and we have um, a commitment. Uh, we we've done four years of that, sorry, three years of that project, and we've committed to another six years. Uh, $400,000 was initially spent on that. There's another million plus to get the rest of the Fraser River ecosystem completed with the vision of taking those 800 sheep and restoring them to that 2,500 sheep in the uh, Fraser River ecosystem that existed pre-mycoplasma, pneumonia, and other diseases. So um, so anyway, Abbotsford Fishing Game steps up with 20 grand. They said, hey, you know, you guys are good at doing this. Let's We're going to partner with you. And we said, yeah, we'll match it and we'll ask our members to match it. We did the match in the month of November number of you stepped up as a monarch member uh there was a number of donations and we got our full match uh additionally abbotsford sorry uh midwest wild sheep foundation they committed nineteen thousand dollars for this year and another two years on top of that three years total fifty seven thousand dollar commitment from midwest 
Um, and then, in you know, here's another example. Our great uh, uh, companies that are supporting the society, Frontier Men's Gear out of uh, Prince George stepped up, $1,400. Uh, Tanner did a drive through his supporting base, and they came up with $1,400 towards this. So overall, huge success. This is going to lo- go a long way on that Fraser River ecosystem. And, and again, we're putting money on the ground. The thing I like about it, I equate this to – Pittman Robertson, right? You know, they always do the match. Um, and we're able to do that through the society. You know, our members are matching. We've got other organizations matching. So that really we, we turned a bunch of a small amount of money into a bunch of money really quickly. Um, and a, thanks to our membership, right? Very cool. Yeah, that's exactly. You, you nailed it. Lightblood, right? We can't do a thing without the membership and the donors and the supporters. And that's what keeps us going. And people are doing it day in and day out, stepping up. Um, yeah, fantastic. Very cool. Uh, okay, so um, we got a new raffle dropping on Saturday. Uh, it should be out by now. Uh, tomorrow it comes out. We're recording this on the January 7th. Um, what this is, is again, one of our members, uh, Chuck Peeling, generously donated a Tika rifle uh, topped with a, a, a very cool scope. Um, it's got the Leica Amplus uh, 318x44i scope. Uh, it's a custom build by Gary Flack. Uh, beautiful rifle, uh, custom sheep rifle. Value on that's fifty six hundred bucks. We're going to raffle it off. The proceeds of that raffle we're going to use for that Tom Lever- Leonard search and rescue recovery. Um, you'll rec- recall episode forty five. Uh, we had Tammy Leonard on. We heard the heart wrenching story of Tom Leonard about a uh, sheep hunter that went missing in Spitsisi Park. He's been gone for fifteen years. There's been no recovery, and um, Terrorist Search and Rescues jumped in. They've been trying to get involved and uh, bring Tom back or bring some indication back of what's gone on with Tom. Uh, so there's closure for that family. Uh, this has been a heart-wrenching story. Go back and listen to episode 45 uh, for the Tom Leonard story. And um, we're hoping we can knock this out of the park. We want to raise $20,000 so that we can make that donation to Terrorist Search and Rescue to help fund that recovery mission. So um, that's that's the new raffle that's out. Um, Tickets are thirty bucks a piece, and uh, it's going to be. Uh, I couldn't think of a more worthy cause. A down sheep hunter trying to get some closure for the family. It's going to be a great opportunity. Our members have already stepped up and donated funds to that. Um, uh, the society has supported Terror Search and Rescue on their last mission, and uh, unfortunately, they were unsuccessful. We talk about that in episode forty-five. So moving forward, um, we're hoping that we can get some closure this summer for the Leonard family. Yeah, and that's what it's all about. You said it a few times. Closure. I can only. I, I don't even want to imagine what uh, poor Tammy and the family's gone through for the last bunch of years since that happened. And there, there's some good leads to work on uh, with, uh, as you'll hear about in that episode. So yeah, uh, step up big like you guys always do and let's sell this one out. Cool. Okay. So um, just a reminder, our WSR tickets are still selling. Uh, the sheep camp is going to sell out soon and the uh, desert sheep hunt is doing well. It's uh Burging on 70% now. So we expect uh, almost all, if not all of them, will be sold out before the March 12th. So if you're thinking you want to buy a desert sheep hunt tag, uh, certainly the Barney Sheep Camp, you better do it because they're they're not going to be around much longer. Um, but we do expect that they'll sell out. So don't wait until March 12th and then complain that you couldn't get a ticket. 
<laughs> that's the way that's the way looking at it right happens every year buddy happens yeah every year. oh oh yeah I, it's I, like I, I didn't get a ticket i'm like we've been telling you so yeah um, i thought i could wait i thought i could wait no no and if you want a shot at a grizzly like you're not getting it in bc unless you're winning a uh a, a raffle here for the foreseeable future and we got those tickets up there as well and a couple others too we got like uh there's uh the what do they call those speed goats the antelope yeah. in uh, alberta with silver sage and then we got uh the funny looking ones with the big long horns in texas the rowdy right the doodads the oddads so yeah there's some <laughs> there's some great raffles there i'm, I'm happy with uh, winning any of those i'm not going to complain so yeah hurry up yeah. your tickets yeah for sure uh, okay so for our listeners we asked you during the Jana waller uh episode to uh get back to us with an answer. And the winner from that was Kerwin. Uh, Kerwin M out of Edmonton is the winner. Kerwin, get in touch with us. We got some cool swag for you. Our merch manager, Steve, is going to get you set up with some really cool stuff. So give Steve, uh, just send us an email to comms at wildsheepsociety.com and uh, we'll get you all set up on swag there. So congrats, Kerwin, on that. Um, And lastly, Campfire Conversations. Talk to me. Yeah, One Campfire. Uh, Our little campaign that... uh, endeavors to show the non-hunter what we have in common with them as hunters has uh, been working on something to further expand our reach and we have created the campfire conversations we've recorded a few episodes already got some great guests on that you're gonna love and we are ready to drop that pretty much anytime so watch for that uh on the One Campfire website, onecampfire.com, on our social, Facebook, and Insta. And you're going to find us where you can find Talk is Sheep. So places like Spotify, Podbean, Google, Apple, and any of the other ones that uh, host. We're so excited for that. And send us an email at info at onecampfire.com if you've got any ideas for guests that you want to see. And uh, we look forward to hearing some feedback. Awesome, bud. I can't wait to hear this. It's uh, it's going to be nuanced from what we do here on Talk is Sheep. It's a it's a different uh, demographic mm. that we're you know targeting, but uh, you know obviously in that outdoor space um, stuff that we're all passionate about. So I can't wait to start listening. I haven't heard any of them. I know that I know what's going on, but I haven't heard them. So I can't wait to to tune into this new campfire convos. It's going to be amazing. So yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. We started uh, the first one a couple of years ago. It was at. Uh, the, the log house you were there right it was uh the, the first version of the campfire conversation we knew we had something that we could run with and we've uh, finally put it together so yeah it's an exciting one an exciting one awesome looking forward to that okay so uh we are episode 57 man this is unbelievable that we're I, we're still kicking i'm stoked with our guest this this for this one, like this unbelievable. Who who would have thought we would have landed somebody that was on the price of right prices right? <laughs> like, and that what's is awesome. not Drew Carey. And, no, it's not Bob Barker. <laughs> and created an hour episode out of somebody on uh on uh prices right. That's just nuts. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe that's not where we go with this one. But what a cool guest. We had Laura's there on. Uh Laura has been on uh, Naked and Afraid five times. Obviously, she's good at what she does. Um, she's a social media influencer. You know, I think that that's probably, you know, what we, she won't tell, she won't say that's what she is, but that's what she does for sure. Uh, but she is, uh, you know, I, I joked about this, that the, she's the Dosecki woman. If there was a Dosecki's woman, um, you know, the Dosecki man, <laughs> yes. the most interesting man in the woman, she is the most interesting woman in the world. Very interesting lady. Um, just 
honestly, I, we could have sat there for three hours and listened to the stories. We're definitely having her on because we just scratched the surface with the stuff that she does. Um, backcountry guide, survival instructor. Uh, she specializes in building shelters, primitive technology, hide tanning, uh, plant identification. She's written a book, A Modern Guide to Knife Making, on um, making afraid five times. She um, hosts Decivilized on Carbon TV and uh, Hunter, uh, just Knife unbelievable. Maker, just book writer, bo- bo- author. Maker. Yeah. Bo- just, and she's 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 young like she's done it all by the age of 30 and has a really kick-ass dog really kick-ass dog that uh i totally i i i love those type of dogs so you want to win something cool what kind of dog does she have email us at communications at wildsheepsociety.com and let us know we got some brand new hats from the wild sheep society bc they're um kick-ass really cool and uh, they got a new patch on them, loving them. Uh, Steve will send one of those over to you. So send us, uh, send us your answers. Uh, so episode 57, Laura Zara, um, freaking great listen. Enjoy the podcast. And thanks, everyone, for supporting us. If you looked up the words conservation superhero in the dictionary, you would see a picture of our friend Omer from Precision Optics, a tireless donor and supporter of all things wild sheep. Precision Optics, located in Quinell, British Columbia, truly stands alone in the high alpine. From optics to rifles to outdoor gear and a knowledge that cannot be surpassed, toss in that killer smile and you have a total conservation package. Precision Optics, we are truly thankful for the support you show us every step of the way. Find them online at precisionoptics.net or in Aroma Foods, located just off Highway 97 in Quinell, BC. Good morning, Laura. Welcome to the show. Thank you guys so much for having me. Good morning. So I don't even know where to start. Like, um, you know, I, I'm doing a little bit of reading about you and it just never ended. It just went on and on and on. So I'm not even going to do it justice. Tell us tell us about who you are and wh- what are you doing today? Because it changes <laughs> daily. I know that for a fact. So let's let's hear a little bit about what you're doing right now. Great, because I was really scared you were going to ask me like what I do, and I never really know how to answer that question. I'm like, oh, God. Um, Today, well, so last night I got a hot tip about a roadkill deer, and uh, I headed out in the middle of a blizzard, picked it up. and I saw that. Yeah, now I'm going to be butchering it up today and kind of uh, not the best for human consumption, but my dog eats all venison, so it's kind of a full-time gig is just roadkill collector at this point, so... I'll be uh, I'll be taking care of that. It'll be a fun day. It's terrible weather out, so it'll be nice. <laughs> yeah, I saw that last night on Instagram. I was like, oh, this will be an interesting conversation. Yeah, oh, yeah. Ashley, I, Ashley, Ashley yeah, yeah, Ashley's here. She actually got stuck here. Um, she was a fly out. She got stuck here because of the weather, and we were like, well, this is perfect. She somehow never processed an animal. So uh, not only was it her first animal she'd processed, but it was my first Instagram live. And then I realized about five minutes in just how horrifying it was going to be for people. <laughs> and you know, like, especially people who haven't seen that side of me to just click on. I mean, I have a lot of like Brazilian followers and I, they don't really, you know, they're, they're mm-hmm. kind of, yeah, I, I felt like there was definitely going to be some, uh, some confusion and maybe some stress, but Hey, you know what? It's just got to keep it real. That's right. So was there any feedback? Have you heard any, got any hate mail over that one yet or? Well, I did actually, uh, there was someone who posted something in Portuguese and I don't speak Portuguese. And I was like, oh man, like 
looking at the, uh, it was like a story that she posted about it. And then when I did the translation, I saw that it said, I was angry and afraid. And then I was like, oh man, like I thought it was like a supportive story. And then I was like, sorry, girl, I don't know. But yeah, you know, I can't win them all. So that's hilarious. So so that ticks off the day now. So interesting enough, that's one of the things I was like, okay, I got to ask Laura, what does she do for a living? And um, so are you, is the, is the full-time job, if you had to, if you had, okay, you're going to the bank, you're, you're applying for a loan. Are you going to put down like, uh, you know, prices right attendant, or are you going to put down um, naked and afraid uh, celebrity? What, what do you put down for day job? Just out of I usually put something super boring, like consultant, just because it's not going to like make a conversation where I start getting embarrassed and awkward. <laughs> I used to put survivalist, but then that was a whole thing too, where people thought I was like some creepy, you know, prepper that like lived in a cave and was hoarding like tons of popcorn. Um, so yeah, I kind of just like make it really vague and uh, kind of reserve the time that I tried to delve into that. Cause like, you know, being at the bank is not one of those times that you want to have to explain that, you're cutting up a roadkill deer that day. So <laughs> you got to choose your battles. <laughs> yeah. Right on. So, you know, I'm kind of curious uh, with, and I always like to find out the people's uh, why and where they came from and, and sort of where they, so uh, you grew up uh, mm-hmm. on the East coast, I think it was in New mm-hmm. Hampshire. Um, tell us a little bit about how you got from where you are sitting in Montana today with those, all those sheds around you to <laughs> where you started. How, what, what was that? And I know there's lots of steps in there, but tell us a little bit about the, the young Laura. Yeah. Young Laura was super weird. Um, <clears throat> so I lived in New Hampshire for a while, but I actually grew up in Western Massachusetts. And when I was a kid, I was just a super oddball. I never really fit in. And I mean, I feel like most kids say that, but it was really true for me. And, uh, I would go and spend a lot of time in this, I called it the woods, but it was this patch of like overgrown tobacco fields at the end of my street. And I would try to bring friends there, but they would always like lose their shoes or get in trouble with their parents for being covered in mud. So a lot of times it was just me and I would hang out a lot with the animals that were there and kind of considered them to be closer friends than uh, most humans. And in that whole process, I was really frustrated because at night I'd have to like go home and sleep in my bed and my mom would, you know, cook me food from the grocery store. And I was like, what's wrong with me? Like, I can't even fit in with my friends, the animals. Like I can't, you know, I'm like broken. I like don't fit in either world. So I decided I was just going to choose the feral animal approach and decide to become one. And, uh, really, I just wanted to learn how to live out there without like these tethers that kept bringing me back into society. So I thought I was going to be the woods hermit because I didn't realize how much I liked people at that point in time and kind of just learned as much as I could. I mean, I, you know, I figured out uh, this like little plant wood sorrel that I could eat. I also learned that if you ate too much of it, you got diarrhea. So that was fun. Um, And I really just like started picking up knowledge wherever I could. And experimenting with stuff, you know, like little kids build forts, but you know what? Forts are really shelters. It's just like, you kind of got to take it to the next level. So I just, I started learning and then uh, I started traveling um, during college and actually met a professor of mine who was uh, ethnobotany professor. And he really kind of changed the way I looked at things, taught me how to build bows and uh, taught, I butchered my first roadkill with him. So he was really instrumental in kind of making me realize that there were other people out there that were kind of my kind of crazy. I mean, I never even knew anyone who hunted or anything like that when I was a kid. So 
it was really strange. I, I feel like I, I got to find my people, um, which is ironic because I started out not wanting to find people. And then I found the people that helped me to become a feral animal. And now I just kind of play in both worlds. <laughs> it's fun. That's very great cool. way of putting it. <laughs> so, so with that, um, help me under, uh, I guess the big thing is you, you have an appreciation for animals, but you also understand the life cycle and about, you know, uh, sustainability and how, you know, how our human footprint, um, how did that ever, so you never killed anything, presumably yeah. you didn't hunt anyway. So nope. what, what was that first experience with that dead animal? Who's your best friend in front of you? How, yeah. what, what's the, what was that evolution like? I mean, I think it was, it was like oddly a natural progression, which people kind of freak out about, but, um, I actually did a, rep- I loved eating meat so much when I was in high school, I did a report on slaughterhouses and I was like, oh my God, like not only is this meat disgusting, but like the whole thing scares me. I don't know what to do because it was all like the factory farming stuff, you know, like the really like sensationalized stories of that. So I decided to look more into like meat and I stopped eating meat for a minute because I thought that was the right thing. Then I traveled down to Central America and I was like, wow, how self-righteous am I? I think I'm saving the world. But like the rainforest is literally being cut down for my tofu to be delivered to me in the middle of the winter and, you know, Massachusetts. So it just like made me rethink everything. And I realized that hunting was the way that I could like feel best about what I was eating. And that that actually was like, you know, you're eating like, am I going to have food come up from who knows where to get me vegetables and tofu in the middle of the winter? Or am I going to have what's local when I'm living in a a Northern climate? And um, I don't know, it was a natural progression. I started like looking at all the animals that I like loved and realizing that they hunt too. And being like, all right, like these incisors that I have aren't for chewing vegetables. So it was, it was a weird progression, but it was really natural. And I think hunting, I mean, it, it was like, it, it made me appreciate everything more. And I think people have this idea that someone who like loves animals is going to hate the transition to hunting. But then when you talk to hunters, you realize that hunters just also love mm-hmm. animals. And so um, it's been interesting to kind of bridge that gap. I used to work in a taxidermy shop that was right next to a yoga studio And, uh, at first there was like plenty of conflict, especially when the dumpster would get really ripe. But, um, but you know, I had a woman come in one day and, um, they would always kind of glare at me as they walked by when I had the door open and a woman walked in one day and I didn't know what was going on, but I started talking to her. And like an hour later, she was like, you know, my, my husband and I have had a huge disagreement. He's a hunter and I'm a vegan. And now I actually want to go hunting with him because I understand. And it's always been like a point of contention between us because I thought he was just telling me what I wanted to hear. But then talking to you, it's like, I realize kind of where it's all coming from. Um, so it's it's been interesting for me to tra- make that kind of transition and feel like I do like bridge that world a little bit. Because um, it is, I mean, I think anyone who knows hunters and hunts, like we do it because we love animals. We do it because we want populations to be healthy. And we don't live in this, um, you know, little Disney world where everything's just happy and the the deer are prancing around and then the hunter comes in and kills them. It's like, it's a lot more complex than that. It's not a, a pristine environment. You can't just have everything work out on its own. There's too many factors and too many variables now. So um, I think a lot of people my thing is kind of to just come at them with information and like, try to like be compassionate and understanding instead of Mm -hmm. being like, you know, screw you. You don't get me. Like I, you know, there's a lot of like butting heads, but I'm just kind of like, Hey, this is where I came from. Totally appreciate it. If it's not you, but like, this is why. And that's been a lot more 
effective for me. That that that's a big part of it. Listen to understand, but not listen mm-hmm. to respond. Right? Too many people yes. just they they listen with the intent of flying right back at them, without mm-hmm. understanding their 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 point. And we hear that a lot. That sort of transition of. Uh, people that used to be vegan or vegetarians, they realize and they sit back and they look at their ecological footprint and they go, wait a minute, just how much died for my wholesome lifestyle. And somebody like us who, who takes one moose or one deer, two deer a year kills two, three animals in, instead of hundreds and thousands for, for monocrops. Right. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's a, not an uncommon story. You just, you just told, and I appreciate hearing it from another one. Yeah, no, it is. It's, it's, it's just way better. You put up a wall, someone's going to put up a wall, and then you're just like going to war. It's like, why? So with your platform um, through, um, through Carbon TV, do, do you find that, do you touch on that? Do you go into that nuance a little bit? Um, you know, I'd, obviously it's about survival. And that's the interesting thing is, you know, I find that someone like yourself that, you know, is not kind of a hunter, you know, that's not, mm-hmm. you're not, people don't paint you as a hunter. They right. paint you as a survivalist, a whole bunch of other things, but mm-hmm. not necessarily a hunter, but you hunt um, kind of like, mm-hmm. you know, as an example, and this is a very gross exaggeration, but Rogan, right? Like, you know, nobody yeah. sees Joe as a hunter, but when Joe talks about hunting, they respect him because they respect him as a non-hunter, totally. I guess. So do, yeah. do you do that through your platform? Do you use that um, to touch on that? Or how does that work with you? Yeah, it's been really interesting. So I've never actually gone and like, I mean, I went out with, um, with SIG this year and we did a, a really awesome hunt with these like two badass girls. Um, and, uh, Lena and Jordan, man, we had a great time and we were kind of filming some of it. It can be really hard when you don't have like a designated camera person who's only there to film with like all this. I mean, filming hunts is hard. I, I think it really makes me appreciate people who do that for a living. I mean, right. Like that's like, Jana Waller, right? Good example. Like to capture it and to experience it. Like that's something I really haven't figured out how to do. Um, And so it's always strange for me to share like parts of it. And then I feel like, how do I do this and like bring it in gradually? So it's like, I share some of it, but I really, it's funny you ask, because I've been thinking like, how do I bring this to people understanding that a lot of my viewers aren't coming at me you know, wanting to see hunting content necessarily. So it's like, well, I want to introduce them to that. I feel like I like owe them that, but it's like, how do I do that in a way that really captures, you know, how I feel about it and is like sensitive enough to it, but still is real and authentic. I think maybe I just get in my own way. Cause I'm so picky about dancing around it and making sure it's done perfectly that it like prevents me from starting. But, um, but I really do. I feel like it's changed my life so much and it's been a huge part of my whole, you know, world that I, I'm kind of doing a disservice by not sharing it because it really is like, it's really important to me. Well, and, and you are through your social platform, obviously the, having that dough and, and um, you know, skinning that out on an Instagram, uh, you know, and you have, uh, you know, obviously a huge following so that, you know, you are doing your part, but whether or not it's part of the show, but you know, and it's interesting that we see um, you know, some of the biggest inroads, to uh, sort of normalize hunting or accept hunting is through mainstream media. Like I think Katniss Everdeen, when, you know, that was one of the most influential shows to sort of have an acceptance for hunters because of, you know, mm-hmm. she was this cool character and then it was in the mainstream and people like, Oh, okay, we're okay with that. Right. So yeah. um, stuff like that is really influential in our, in our mm-hmm. space. So you're kind of that crossover individual that no people don't, you're not your typical huntress. So people are like, Oh right. no, she's not like that. And right. it's interesting 
I, I have this dialogue all the time with neighbors. I live in right in the heart of kind of a, a very, uh, I guess, uh, not a hunting community, that's for sure. <laughs> and um, when we have this conversation, people go, yeah, but you're different. That they, People say right. that all the time. Like, well, you're different. You're, you know, you don't have the, you know, you're, you're not wearing the, the camo and all this stuff. I'm like, well, but I'm not that different. This is, this is our community, right? So mm-hmm. it's so interesting, but it's so, it's impossible to have that story. So you're in a very unique yeah. spot and, and we're lucky to have you. So thank you. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate that. And it definitely, it's like making my mind just like kind of turn over right now. Just like, how do I, how do I do it more? You know? And, um, cause it is, it's like, it, it's, it's a huge part of my life. It's not my whole life. And I think there's so many people that are doing it well, but I do, I mean, I, I kind of, uh, I don't know. I got to think about that one because it, it is. I was I was talking to a good fun, friend of mine, Brandon Lilly, a little while ago, and we were both like, "Man, how do we bring this to people and let them know that it it really is not what a lot of you know for, when we're in the hunting community, you know what it really is. But for outsiders who know no one who hunts, it still is very much this kind of like backwards, just ignorant thing, which is shocking to me because uh, I have yet to meet a lot of the a lot of those people that are apparently all that hunters are. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's interesting to think about how to do it in more of like a, I do it on one-on-one levels, but doing it in more of a mass level. Yeah. If anyone's got any ideas, let me know, reach out to me. <laughs> uh, keep doing what you're doing. Cause it's, it's working yeah. for sure. And, and honestly, okay. you say there's a lot of people that are doing it well. It's really the, the lures of the world. It's, it's the people that are appealing to the masses, um, that, um, share the nuance of hunting. They're the ones that are effective. Guys like Steve and I will never be able to do that well. Uh, it just will never, will never. <laughs> you know, again, the one-on-one maybe, but like on a large scale basis, we'll never, we'll never crack that code. I so. feel like your neighbors, at least, at least you're getting your neighbors. <laughs> exactly. And that's how it starts, right? Is that one conversation. And yeah. it's, it's refreshing to see somebody that the ones that always resonate with me are the ones that are real. The one, mm-hmm. you, it's not the ones that make sure the camera is right here and they've got the best face on and then no, yeah. take two. it's the ones that, that screw up on camera and go, Hey, I, I missed, I, oops, I cut myself while skinning yeah. or I can't get a fire going or it's bloody cold out. Those are the ones that I appreciate too. Totally. Yeah. Like when I have my camera fall into my roadkill deer, like five times, last night was the first time exactly. I actually didn't have it fall into the deer once. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, real world. And, and that's one thing about you that I've appreciated, Laura, is, is you're genuine, uh, you know, and you've been very, uh, I guess, uh, uh, self-admittedly, you know, you've learned through the hard ways, you've made the mistakes, you've gone out, you've done it. Um, from what I understand, you your first uh, taxidermy or your first tanning experience was a roadkill beaver. You, you, you had this. Yes. It, tell us about that experience, because that's pretty crazy. Oh, man. So it was the second beaver that had been hit in the same spot in the road. This is when I was, you know, a kid still with my parents. And uh, I was like, man, I want to do something with that. I don't, I know that there's this thing called brain tanning, but I don't know what it involves, but I'm going to get that beaver and skin it and somehow figure out what to do. So I convinced my sister and her green Camaro to like go with me and pick up this beaver and, you know, I'm picking it up and I'm putting it in the trash bag and there's like, 10 feet of entrails that are just like, I'm pulling along and I'm like, Oh God, I'm like bringing in the rope and putting it in the bag. And my sister's horrified at this point, but you know, I go back home and it's Easter Sunday, mind you, we saw this going home from church. So uh, <laughs> I come home with a beaver in a bag and I, I get my, my very dull knife and uh, a pickle jar, a pickaxe and the beaver. And I convince my other sister, cause my first one's done with me to go into the woods with me uh, to 
figure out how to skin this thing. And of course, my parents at this point, like 100% are wondering if they have a serial killer on their hands because they've never <laughs> seen this kind of behavior before. Um, I disappear. Uh, me and my sister are out there. I kind of figured out how to get like a, you know, a chunk of the hide off. It was a terrible job. It was like a jagged chunk. Um, and then I'm, you know, got the brains out with the pickaxe, which is not the way to do it. But uh, I got a little bit of brains in that pickle jar. And um, yeah, it was... I was surprised at how intuitive the skinning part of it was because I really had no idea what to do. Um, and I got this chunk of chunk of beaver skin and uh, learned that, um, you know, I was able to preserve the skin. I would not say that it was soft. Beaver is a hard animal to learn how to brain tan on. But I kind of figured it out. And then I went back to it and kind of learned some more, went back to it and made it a little softer. And um, that piece of beaver hide is still kicking around somewhere. I got kind of my belongings scattered all across the country. So it's, it's somewhere, but it, it worked and I was kind of hooked. Very cool. So you, you know, in your description of who you are or your, your write up taxidermist is one of them. So I guess you evolved from that brain tanning experience and you mentioned the taxidermy studio you worked in. So uh, are you still yeah. involved in that? Do you still do taxidermy work or how does that work? So I kind of do like a little alternative. I mean, I do all my own like Euro stuff and skulls and bones and all that kind of stuff. But I found that being a nomad and, you know, being able to have a shop is really not, uh, it doesn't really work out. I've bought a bunch of taxidermy supplies and then had to like shed them in the move so many times that I was like, man, I mean, I still, I enjoy it. I enjoy doing kind of weird stuff with it. Um, kind of like off the wall, like, I don't know, just... I, well, what I, I really wanted to do, I probably shouldn't admit this, but you know what? I'm just going to be honest. I really want to do a, a coyote with a chihuahua in its mouth. <laughs> that is my ultimate, like, and I, nothing against chihuahuas, but um, I actually, I was looking Kyle. forever for a chihuahua. That was my one problem. And I was hitchhiking through Chicago. This is like 10 years ago. Hitchhiking through Chicago. I find a box and it says, do not touch so of course it's a cardboard box. I lift it up and there's a dead chihuahua under it. <laughs> and I was like, Oh my God, this is my moment. And uh, then some other people started walking by and they're like, don't touch that. And I like got scared and ran away. And I, I think about that now. I'm like, that was my moment. I really blew that one. So, so um, <laughs> that one hits Kyle hard. I, Do you have a chihuahua? I've got, I've got, well, I've got three. <laughs> oh my God. I actually really like, and it's no, it really is nothing personal against chihuahuas. I will say that some of my favorite and least favorite dogs have been chihuahuas. Yeah. Like some of the most, I, I feel like if, if, you know, if you're their owner, they're very protective, but. um, I can vouch for one of his. It's good. Well, actually uh, started because I had a good friend with a really sweet chihuahua who saw the chihuahua taken in, in her backyard and it like the coyote ran off with it. And wow. uh, it was one of those things where it was like horrifying, but it's so it, representative of the world we live in now. Right. That's yeah. Very, yeah. yeah absolutely. There's, there's, I a, mean, there's a crazy picture that goes around social media. No doubt you've seen it. It's a trail camera picture of a, of a coyote that's got like a Jack Russell in its mouth and it's staring right at the camera. I've never seen that. Really? I'm going to go do a deep dive. <laughs> I will have that's to amazing. send that to you. What is? It's kind of like, it's kind of like my whole philosophy, right? Like, the wild always wins and no matter how much you think you're in control and no matter how kind of like much you think you have this whole world figured out, like the wild will always win. And that, that would represent that to me if I had that as a mount. It's like, yeah, Kyrie's just come in and take your chihuahua. Hopefully not. Hopefully not. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. I just well, found it. In, I found it in two seconds of looking. If you oh Google coyote with small dog in mouth, 
and it's <laughs> it's staring at the camera and you can see that it's clearly a Jack Russell and it's got a collar on and it's it's uh whoa. We're we're I like using that to show people that coyotes aren't these cute and cuddly things that uh, a lot of the urban dwellers seem to think. Yeah. I, I see oh, you found I the did. picture. <laughs> I did. It's amazing. Yeah, it's like they're they're still they're wild and uh you know, you start feeding them and treating them like they're your pets, they're going to also look at your pets as food. <laughs> well, we have It's like the old uh, saying goes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, what we are having a problem in BC here in Vancouver, our, our biggest urban center. It's an iconic park, Stanley Park, and it's yes. rampant with coyotes. And they're, you know, and it's interesting that we got celebrities, Brian Adams, weighing in on yep. behalf of the coyotes, saying, "Oh no, no, we oh have to gosh. protect them, right?" And it's, you know, one of our directors uh, with our the society has always said, "Oh, we should go and drop off ten grizzly bears in Stanley Park and see how people feel about it, right?" Like it's, <laughs> it's just. Yeah. It is. It's yeah. amazing. I, I actually, there's this really, um, another really great podcast called Tooth and Claw, and they kind of detail animal attacks on people from like a very, you know, wildlife biologist standpoint of like, this is the behavior and this is why it's happening. And I cannot believe how much the, like, how many attacks in Stanley Park. I mean, it's unbelievable. Like it really is just like a massive concentration because the coyotes are in every major city, you mm-hmm. know, in the country. And I'm assuming it's like that in Canada as well. I feel like something's going on there. I mean, that is like a serious percentage. You think about, I don't know, like Griffith Park in LA and that, you know, you hear about dogs kind of it happening with dogs, but the amount of people that have been attacked is like shocking. Yeah. There was something like 43 last, last I heard and including a two-year-old, like a two-year-old got bit and that's, that ain't right. That ain't No, no. Especially in like an urban setting. It's just, are are they being managed at all? Uh, unofficially, yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, manage is the word we'll use. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> but Always. but there was they they closed the park down a couple of times overnight so they could manage them, and there 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 was people posting on social media saying that they were going to go interfere and get in the way of the guns and all the stuff they were using. Like that, come on, what would it be like if it was your two year old? Like Darwinism, that, exactly. Get in exactly. the way of the guns. That doesn't yeah. sound like a very good idea. No, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I like that. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Yeah. It's kind of crazy. Huh? Cool. cool. So um, you talked about building a boat. So um, I know you did a bunch of stuff on that. Are you still building them? Are you, like, are you building them for sale? How does that work? Are you just building for your own use? And traditional yeah. bow, obviously, right? Yeah. Yeah. So okay. I first, my first bow was back in 2004, 2005, somewhere in there um, with this amazing guy, Manuel Zeralde. And I learned so much, like I actually went down and cut the tree down and seasoned the wood and just, you know, everything. Um, and since then I've, I've had the privilege of working with a few different bow makers and yeah, it's something that it's, it's been really frustrating because I'll, especially I'm, I'm a little more settled now than I was, but I was really moving all the time. And so I'd, you know, get this stave, it'd be seasoned. I'd start working on it. And then I'd be leaving with my backpack and I wouldn't be able to like bring it. So I've probably started more bows than anyone. Um, <laughs> not anyone, but I've definitely, it's crazy how many bows I've started compared to the bows that I've finished. But uh, I think it's just an amazing thing because you you really have to listen to the wood. I've never done any kind of carpentry, woodwork, stuff like that. So having to listen to the wood and find the bow in the wood is pretty wild and it's time consuming and it's definitely a winter project for me because if it's 
you know, the summertime, I'm just running around for 15 hours a day. Um, but I love it. And then at the end of it, it's like, I love the process. And then you're like, oh, and I have a bow. I think it's something that if you're just doing it to get the bow at the end, then you should find someone who to make it for you. Because if you don't enjoy the process, it is a long, tedious process. Um, but yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's another one of those things too, where I feel like if I'm shooting every day, it's amazing how quickly it becomes instinctual, how good you can get. But then taking breaks from it. And uh, you know, people are always like, why do you ever go back to anything but traditional? And I'm like, well, cause I don't want to shoot an animal unless I'm know that I can be confident in my shot. And for me personally, it's something that I have to keep up with and I have to stay regular with or else I feel like it's just unethical to be like, you know, slinging arrows in the general direction of something. So um, it's something that I, I absolutely love. I'm not like just a, uh, strict traditional bow hunter by any means. Um, this year it it wasn't even uh, a question. I wasn't going to go out with my traditional bow this year. Um, but it's something I do love and it's always like a way to kind of up the challenge, which is another theme I love is like, how do I make something harder? But it definitely takes commitment of time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this year you talked about, uh, your uh, hunt. Did you, did you say it was with Bert or who were you out with? Oh, I was with, uh, Sig, six hours. Oh, Sig, right. Um, Yeah. And I went um, with uh, Jordan Budd and Lena McCulloch and we went um, in Nebraska. Jordan took us out on uh, her property there to really just uh, get to experience some whitetails in Nebraska, which was incredible. It's always really different. What were you using for a weapon for that? Were you, did you have a bow or was a rifle or what'd you do? Uh, I had the six, five cross rifle. So it was, it was great. That thing is like, I mean, we, we were like, you can pick the heart shot. We all like blew the hearts apart basically. I mean, it was, it was amazing how accurate it was, especially for me. Cause I didn't start out using guns. I, I learned how to use guns much later. So it's nice. I love that thing. We did a competition last year called the Hunter games um, in Wyoming. And that like, I mean, as far as confidence goes, it was, it was incredible how, I, you know, it's like, all right, this will be a fun competition, but it actually surprised me how much, putting that kind of pressure. I'm very competitive on something really up my game with hunting. Um, I felt more pressure in that competition than I ever have hunting. I don't get that buck fever thing. So, uh, it was, it was pretty cool. So when you guys were on that hunt, was that a tree stand? Were you guys in stands or how did you do it? Stock and spot or yeah. 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 (laughs) Either way. Um, (laughs) yeah. So it was, it was kind of, it was kind of amazing because it was freezing cold out and we're out there and, you know, just going out and glassing. And then what surprised me the most was just the amount, um, of, of animals that were just moving around, you know, being able to see it growing up in new England, you just don't see what's there. And whether or not you can approach them is a different story because it's all open, but just being able to see what's going on like that is still, it's just something I never really get used to. Even in Montana, I feel like I always find the timbered thick patches. It must be habit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, it was pretty amazing though. Whole new respect for Nebraska too. Like what a cool landscape. I'd never been uh, to the Western part of the state. It was really cool. I was just on a mule deer hunt in Alberta um, and same thing, prairies, right? And we're seeing probably a hundred deer a day. And it's just, it's so cool to be in that environment because on the coast, we don't see that, right? And just to get out there and see that much wildlife and that that much yeah. uh, biomass on the landscape, it's amazing to watch, right? It's so cool. Yeah, I yeah. love it. It never gets old and there's always like a new place to go. Right. Yeah. Awesome. So, okay. 
Now I see on your Instagram feed this massive bighorn. What? Tell me about what's the story there? Oh, you, uh, so oh my on? gosh, I'm getting really excited now. Um, so it just became legal to keep bighorn skulls in Montana. I mean, you obviously have to take them in and um, get them plugged, but uh, I've it's something I've wanted to do forever. And man, I just I love the terrain that bighorns are. like. Cheap terrain is my kind of country. Just crazy, intense, you know, rocky, death defying, all of it, and going out. And having a reason to, I've never, I've never gotten to go on a sheep hunt. It's definitely like a dream. Um, hasn't happened yet. It will, but getting to go and and look for for the deadheads is kind of like the closest I can get. And man, it was nuts. The first day I went out, I found a, a just a used skull that didn't have any horn cheese. But then it was like, okay, it's possible. Like I'm in the right spot. And um, the second time I ever went out, I was uh, with my buddy Dave. We've been friends forever. He's a uh, um, also a shed hunter. And we went out together and we were kind of walking pretty close, exploring a new area. And we're like, man, we always go alone. What are we going to do if we find one? We have to find like a pair of bighorn skulls. Otherwise we're going to be fighting over one if we do find one. And um, we both looked on the map, both decided this one spot was the best spot and we just were both going to hit it. So we're, we're coming down this, this super thick wooded draw after being way up high um, all day on like pretty rocky um outcroppings and he I, I literally stopped to tie my shoe and he went in front of me and I just hear him start yelling and I'm like you've got to be kidding me so I run up and of course he found this huge trophy bighorn and I'm like man that's awesome like trying to be happy for him but I'm also like well I know who's keeping this one <laughs> gotta go find another one but the odds seemed really unlikely and no uh a hundred yards further after we'd gotten it loaded up and freaked out and gotten all the gross smelling juice out of his horns. Um, we, uh, we found mine and it, it was right there. It was crazy. I mean, I, I couldn't believe it was real. I freaked out. I was screaming and yeah, it was really exciting, but man, they're just such amazing animals. I think what struck me the most was all the bones were there on both of them and almost all the bones were broken and rehealed. And that to me, is just, it's, it's insane. The, mine, uh, the whole jaw was broken and one side was just built up and gnarly and huge. Um, just so impressive as far as how they can live in this already incredibly rugged, you know, environments in the winter time, they can make it through that. But then clearly they're getting pretty beat up out here. Like, how do they not fall? Well, I feel like they do fall. <laughs> like It's crazy. Um, so yeah, it's just, it gave me a whole new excitement for it. Um, getting to go out and uh, this year was way busier than I wanted it to be. But um, I actually, I, I just went out in, uh, in some areas down the way to kind of get an eye on where they were hanging out this winter. Um, Cause man, this next spring, I'd love to find more. It'll tide me over till I get to do a sheep hunt. Wow. That's pretty phenomenal. Like I, I talked to you about this before the show that, you know, Janet found one and, and I thought the the chances of two roommates finding two deadheads are, yeah. and then you're like, yeah, well, I found two, two in the same day. <laughs> I know. Well, it's wild. I feel like it shocked me because, you know, even going out for sheds here, it's so competitive. So many people are out there and I, you know, I love that, but it makes you go to the places no one else wants to go, which is where I want to be anyway. And, um, it's surprising that, I don't know, I was just so surprised to actually find them. You just don't expect to actually make it connect. But I think also it, it doesn't hurt that it's new in Montana. So it's not like people have been going forever. Um, but I mean, just walking around out there, it's nice to know that I love that, you know, you never know what you're going to find. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. I guess it just makes me uh, seem a little bit more like a scavenger than a hunter. But in all fairness, I did start out with roadkill salvage. So <laughs> it kind of makes sense. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Uh, when you recover something like that, when you find a roadkill, do you have to get a permit or you just call them up and tell them or do you have to do it? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, in Montana, it's it's actually really great because certain states, it's really difficult. But in Montana, you basically go online and you fill out the salvage permit. I always like take pictures or videos where I found it just in case anyone needs any more proof. Um, I do the same with deadheads and stuff. I just I want to make sure everyone knows everything. And um, they're really great. Like Montana Fishing Game. I love them. Um, they're just so I mean, they make it so easy. Other states, you really have to search for how to keep it. And it's like, most people just end up breaking the law because they don't know how to make it legal. Um, here, it's so easy. So you have 24 hours to uh, to report it and get a salvage permit. And you just keep that with the meat. And um, it's super easy. Cool. Yeah. yeah. That's the way it should be, right? Like, uh, I yeah. know they're worried about poaching, but like realistically, like, yeah, it's... It, yeah, I think it, yeah. I think that's smart the way they do it because you're absolutely right. People are going to take it no matter what. If they want it mm-hmm. bad enough, they're going to take it. You might as well make it easy yeah. enough for them to, to recover it. Totally. And, you know, I think, man, I just can't imagine sacrificing my vehicle to poach a deer. I guess there's people out there that would be willing to do that. But I really love antlers. But I would never, like, sacrifice my vehicle for a deer, even if it was legal. That just seems like a, a really poor choice. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's better ways to do it for sure. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about um, your knife making work. So you've written a book, A Modern Guide to Knife Making. Talk about the evolution mm-hmm. of that. Where did you learn and how did you, how the heck did you write a book on it? Especially as a <laughs> nomad, great, right? Great question. I have no idea. Um, I, so I was shoeing horses back in New Hampshire and kind of the progression when you have a, an anvil and a forge is to make a knife. I mean, who doesn't want to do that? So I was kind of messing around with things, but um, you know, I had made a few knives at that point, but it was really strange because I was writing a book on survival and then my publisher called and was like, Hey, how do you feel about writing a book on knife making? And I was like, Oh, it's not in my wheelhouse. Like I know some amazing knife makers, but I'm not an expert. Like I know how to do it, but I can't take it to the level that some of these incredible, you know, artists of knives can do. Um, they were like, well, no, that's perfect because you can really break it down for someone who doesn't know where to start. You know, there's a, a lot of really amazing books out there if you're at a super high level, but for someone who's just like maybe watched Forge and Fire and wants to actually do it themselves, there's there wasn't something out there. So I was like, well, I can write a book for beginners. I'll just write the book I wish I had and that I kind of still wish I had to lay things out. So uh, it was really fun. I got, I'm lucky to know a lot of really incredible knife makers out there and they were so great helping with, um, you know, just being really patient, uh, with all my questions, because you ask 10 different knife makers, they're going to give you 10 different ways to make a knife. So I wanted to find something that was kind of just middle ground for everyone. Um, and yeah, the rest is history. It was it was fun. I learned a lot. It was crazy. I had to build a forge in my at my friend's farm in Maine. He had a sugar shack there. He was using to boil maple syrup. We got all the maple syrup stuff out. And I just went around the neighborhood and was like, I heard you have an anvil. Can I borrow it? Like, I heard you have a coal fire forge. Can I borrow it? So it was really exciting. And uh, it was like only a few months um, that I had to kind of just write it and then get all the pictures. And it was, you know, action packed. Uh, book writing doesn't sound like it'd be action packed, but it was. <laughs> Well, the, the cool part is, is that this truly is a, you know, you can show somebody that's a beginner that you can do this. Like you can, you find a spot, you go source a couple things. And I'm guessing you didn't do it on a $25,000 budget. You were pretty oh, budget limited. Yeah. Um, Scraps. So 
And that's exactly what you want for somebody that's starting mm-hmm. out, right? Is because yeah, yeah I'm, I'm sure it's intimidating if you're like, oh, I want to be a master knife maker, and you go in and go, yeah, we'll go out and you spend fifty grand on gear and get right. this set up, and then you're ready to go, right? right? It's like, and and yeah. you're not even really sure if you like it yet, but you better make this commitment. It's like, oh right. god, I feel like that's like what college was. <laughs> like, <laughs> you want to be able to dip your toe in the water first, and then work your way up. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. very cool. Okay, so if people want to grab your book, um, I guess the big place on it is Amazon, right? Uh, just yeah, go- Amazon. Google your name. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just Google my name. A modern guide to knife making is the name of the book, and it it shows up. So, yeah, it's buying books is so easy these days. Cool. Yeah, right on. Okay, so um, lots of our listeners are sheep hunters and conservationists, of course, but a lot of people that spend time yes. in the backcountry. Um, you know, I go out every year chasing sheep, but I got the best gear and everything, and I've never really gotten myself into really a pickle, but. You have lived a different lifestyle. You've been on It's Naked and Freighted. Is it two or three times you've been on the show? Five, oddly. Oh, my goodness. Okay. So (laughs) safe to say you have some very specialized skills that a lot of us don't and a lot that we can learn from you. So keep in mind you're talking to someone like myself that goes out on a two-week sheep hunt. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not in a, I don't have a camp. I, I've just got my tent and all that. Um, mm-hmm. but you get yourself in a pickle. Maybe you can't get back to your, your camp. Um, so you're out yeah. there, it's kind of winterish, and I can't get to my tent. So what are some of the basic survival stuff that we need to be thinking about, um, that we maybe don't know that you could help. And I know you're a survival expert as well. Mm-hmm. You do survival training and that sort of stuff. So what are, what are some of the things I need to be thinking about as a sheep hunter? I mean, yeah, I think the biggest thing is just, from the start, mental attitude is really important. And you just kind of have to break it down in a really logical way and think, okay, what's going to kill me first? So there's a million things that are back at camp. You're probably starving if you've been running around in that terrain all day. All you're thinking about is food and how excited you were to to get back and get your meal. You got to just turn that part of your brain off. You're not going to die from not eating. Um, There's a lot of things that are going to kill you before that. And obviously, especially if you're out sheep hunting, exposures is going to be the biggest one. Um, Being out, being exposed, night falls, you can't be running around to keep warm. Um, That's your biggest concern. So, I mean, the first step obviously would be prevention. So I always have in my bag, if I have nothing else, I have a lighter and I have uh, fire paste. It's like that super flammable tube that you, you know, doesn't matter what kind of weather, what kind of wind, whatever, like that stuff's going to light. Um, it can be really hard in certain terrain if you don't have fuel. And so if you are in that situation, it's like thinking about all the ways you're going to be losing heat from, you know, having wind strip heat away from you. If you're sitting on cold rocks, having that be a, a heat sink. So it's like any way that you can minimize any of those to hunker down. Um, having, you know, extra stuff in your bag. I, I love, I learned from sheep hunters. I always bring a, a pretty light sleeping bag, but I bring down pants, down booties and a, a down jacket. And then if I have that in my bag and if something goes wrong, um, if I know I'm doing something a little sketchy when I'm out hunting, or I feel like I might have to spend the night out, I have those. And then it's like, I get to wear a sleeping bag um, if I do have to hunker down somewhere. So it's like just really understanding all the ways you're going to lose heat, trying to prevent that. If you can get down elevation somewhere where you can start a fire, um, it's all the little things that add up. But the first problem of that is as soon as you know, you're not going to get back to camp for, for anyone, you know, there's that little voice in your head that just is like, Oh, well I'm going to die. And you kind of have to just realize that that's not true. 
And you just need to think super analytically and minim- start minimize, make a list and minimize, okay, what's the most important thing I can do to prevent the first way I'm going to die out here, <laughs> which sounds really dark. But if you can be analytical about it, I think that's the, really the most important thing is just put the emotion to the side. You can deal with that later. But uh, if you're starting to feel sorry for yourself, that, that's not a useful thing. You got to put your energy somewhere else. Cool. So now with, I know that you're also uh, basically a fire expert too. I've seen a lot of the work you do there. So uh, let's say you're on your sheep hunt, you're up in the mountain and you drop down, get some, but one of the issues we have on the coast is super moist. So, um, Mm -hmm. you know, you got your fire paste, you've got your lighter, but Mm -hmm. what's kind of, what's kind of a fail safe uh, go-to in a wet environment that you kind of found that works really well for you? Yeah. I mean, if you do have uh, trees, I think like obviously anything that's standing dead is going to be better than something that's on the ground. But also you can you can cut into stuff. You know, if you find a standing dead tree, maybe the outside is completely saturated. But if you have a knife on you and you can you can break into that um, or just even if you don't have a knife on you, just splitting stuff up, kind of breaking stuff open and obviously working from really small and slowly getting bigger when things are really wet they're going to catch, but they have to dry out first. So if you just get stuff that's really fine and then work your way, like really gradually up, you know, you see a lot of people, even people who kind of know what they're doing with fire, like you can get away with a lot in certain areas. So people will start small, but then they'll have like a giant log and they'll try to like get that to burn, but you have to exaggerate that progression when it's really wet. And um, just looking for places that are naturally sheltered, um, whether it's under trees, like the lee side of rocks, somewhere that's going to be getting less direct wind and water. Um, and I've even, when I'm starting out uh, a fire, I've, I've used my body to kind of protect and shelter that immediate flame. And yeah, it sucks. You're getting smoke in your face, but you know what? Hold your breath. Like if it's a matter of life and death, you can deal with that for a second. And just, just protecting that initial fire or building a fire structure that's going to protect the flame in itself. You know, if you build like a good teepee fire and you just really layer it up and you you take your time with those layers, then it's shelter, it's acting as a shelter for the fire as well. So it's really just breaking it down and starting like exaggerating those steps in the beginning and just preparing more than you would normally have to prepare. And I'm telling you with fire paste, even in those conditions, um, you can you can get a fire going if you just like take a little bit of extra time. It's worth it. Very cool. Now on the shelter side of things today, you talked about finding something that's naturally sheltered. Um, But if you, Mm -hmm. if you can't get back to camp and it's really one of those nasty nights and exposure is an issue and you're trying to find yourself, do you look for a natural, like a cave, a natural cave or, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, the root of a tree that's, that's bored out or, or what, what do you, what are your main things you'd be looking? Because obviously building a shelter, there's, if if you, if you got food and unlimited energy, there's no issue, but uh, you know, one of the risks with exposure is, is yeah, you're, you're using all your energy to, to try and find a shelter that, you know, um, so anything that you recommend there with regards to that, Laura? Yeah. I mean, I'm always looking for like little, I I just some kind of a den kind of girl. So I'm always looking for like a little, like, you know, hole under a a tree or a place. I'm always kind of looking for that. And, um, if, and if I get in a situation, if you can find something that gives you any sort of start, whether it's some kind of impression, I mean, I just notice naturally now when I'm out where the areas are that are getting less moisture. If it's raining, I take the time to notice that. And, you know, if you get into a situation like that, it, saves you so much time if you can find something that's already there like maybe it's just a tree that's down and if you add 
you know, it's got a little dry patch in the middle, but if you add some boughs to the side of that and just pile as much crap as you can up there, it's going to give you a little place. I think the biggest thing is realizing that you're not trying to build a Taj Mahal out there. You're trying to build something where literally it's just going to keep your body dry when you're curled up in a ball. And whether it's a, a cave or, you know, a naturally kind of occurring place from fallen trees or whatever, um, bringing as much grass or leaves or pine needles into that space to act as insulation, that's one of the most useful things you can do. As soon as you know you're not going to be soaking wet, like I'll gather a bunch of grass or pine needles and just shove them so I can kind of hug it into my core to keep the heat in. Um, if you can kind of pile them up around you, you know, stick them in the walls, stick them on the ground to keep you up, lifted off the ground a little bit. Um, using all of those materials to actually just insulate your body, shove them in your jacket. You know, if you got like a, a rain jacket on, shove, shove grass inside your jacket to add insulation. Um, it's, it's super useful and it's amazing how warm you can actually get like that. Wow. It's crazy. I, yeah. The, this is all new to me. I, I've never considered that. So very cool. And you know, that's the thing is sheep mm -hmm. hunters. We generally have the best of the best, but there are times mm -hmm. where I've been stuck on the mountain. I've been out, I didn't, I couldn't get back to camp yeah. stuck in there. And um, even in the middle of summer in August, there, there's been times where in the mountain, I literally uh, ended up three o'clock in the morning, getting on my, uh, throwing on a, uh, uh, what do you call those? Uh, the emergency blanket and yeah. uh, and you go instantly from freezing to instantly sweating to death, right? And it's yes. just, uh, but uh, yeah, it's pretty pretty awkward and pretty uncomfortable. And that was in a controlled yeah. environment where you know it, it wasn't. I wasn't stuck out there for three days, not being able to get to mm -hmm. lose it, losing my tent or something like that. So yeah, uh, that's oh. another one though that I always carry with me is an emergency blanket, and I've used it. I mean, it, they suck in the wind because they rip to shreds. But if you can find somewhere that I've used it as an emergency tarp plenty of times, and um, it's so light. It's so easy to carry. You know, it's not, I'm, I'm such a minimalist, but having like a lighter fire paste and an emergency blanket, like that's a pretty good start. Yeah. Kyle, yeah. you though, you, you had quite the issue though. You were lucky you were prepared. Was it this past fall or was it last fall already with you having to come off the mountain in a hurry with the snow? Uh, I can't remember which story that was. I've had a few. I can't remember. <laughs> what, uh, you're, you're chasing goats. Oh yeah. 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 That was, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That, and that was just a snow, we got caught in a snowstorm basically. So, yeah. um, you know, same sort of thing. And it, you know, that goes back to your, your story, Laura, about mental, your mental state, right. Um, you know, mm -hmm. that we kind of got up on this mountain, we got caught in a blizzard and we didn't really, we, you know, you can always kind of find your way off a mountain, but we ended up getting clipped out and then eventually we figured out, but it was one of those things where we're, I was waist deep in snow. Uh, and it was, yeah. there was no snow the day before, and it was in this blizzard and there was this kind of like, oh, you know, like I'm, I'm in a bad spot here. Mm -hmm. And my partner is just like, yeah, just keep it in perspective. We just find our way off the mountain, just relax. And I wasn't mm -hmm. freaking out, but you could, you could see I was on the edge of like, you know, so it's that mental state. Like you maintain yeah. your composure, you can do anything. Right. But it's, you lose your yeah. mind, you're, you're in trouble. Right. So, yeah, yeah. it's so true. Yeah. yeah. Oh God, I've been there. And then you start like you're sweating because you're in waist deep snow. But the second you stop, you're freezing because you're encased in snow. It's yeah. fun. Yeah, no, exactly. No, for sure. Okay. So let's let the last one, you know, that we've got the big three, we got, uh, um, uh, food shelter or sorry, shelter. And, uh, what was the other one? Fire, uh, water, food. Yeah, exactly. So let's talk about food. Um, when you're out there and, and you're in a survival ex uh, environment, are you thinking foraging first? Like, are you always looking for plants? Is that always your go-to obviously for the uh, energy aspect or, or how does that work? No, plants are really like a last ditch effort for me just because 
they really are, there's not a massive amount of calories in them. Mm. So it, it, it goes really fast. I mean, sure. If there's a bunch of berries, like I'm going to take advantage of that sugar. Um, but really it's me, it's all about protein and fat out there, man, you just can't get enough of that. So any way I can capitalize on that, finding a source, insects become really appealing because they're full of fat and, and protein and they're easy to, to get, you know, it's, it doesn't really rely on, um, hunt, like the success of the hunt as much. It's more of a gathering thing. So it's kind of like, they're kind of like plants that they're not hard to gather and they're plentiful, but you're going to get more out of them. So that's kind of where you first go. And then it's like, you know, you, the first couple days, um, you are going to have more energy if you're not getting any sort of food. So it's really focusing on a strategy in those first few days to start getting food or else you're going to notice your energy start to go down and then hunting becomes harder. Um, so it's really, I mean, the first day you kind of just put that off, but then you're thinking about it. You're picking up stuff from your environment, trying to learn how to figure the place out while you're meeting your other needs. And then, uh, yeah, figuring out how to, make a fish trap or some primitive line or, you know, set up some deadfalls. I feel like traps and kind of passive hunting is really the way to go in a survival situation. Cause you, mm. you're working when you're not working. Yeah. Minimal which energy. Is, which is key. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, when you were on the shows, uh, naked and afraid, the five of them, did you, was there lots of, did you, were you successful with your trapping efforts or how did that work with regards to that? It, it's really funny. By, by the time you really understand how to trap in a location, you're basically already leaving. Right. So it's pretty amazing when you're looking at indigenous cultures and just traditionally how different it's the same concepts, but where they're placed, how they're used. It's so regions like specific and animal specific. And if you throw me in the rainforest, well, my knowledge of, you know, animals is not going to be as good as it is up here. So it was really interesting that aspect and the trapping, it worked more in the fishing aspect of it, but we, we mostly had success towards the end of our time out there just because it did take about that learn that long to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you'd learn certain things that would translate. Like there was, uh, when I was in Colombia, I saw a bird birds on the ground in the jungle and it's kind of just dragging its wing along. And I'm like, Oh, I know that. Like it's got a, <laughs> it's got a, it's got a ground nest. It's trying to drag me away from it. So where is it trying to pull me? I'm going to go and circle where it's not. And I was able to find the nest and find a bunch of eggs. So, you know, you'd feel bad, but Hey, um, they were delicious Survival. baby birds. Yeah. Um, so it was interesting how some stuff translates like that. And a lot of it was, uh, opportunistic and, um, going fishing and being creative. I, I ran into some trouble when I was in the Amazon cause I made primitive fishing line and primitive fishing hooks. And then the piranhas, you'd catch them and you'd be pulling them out and they'd bite right through the line. So I was like, Oh man, you know, this didn't translate well. I didn't think about these crazy piranhas with their teeth. Um, but it was always fun. It was always different. Um, had some had some good success. I got a porcupine when I was up in Alaska, which is really great. Um, it's one of my favorite wild meats. You guys must have eaten porcupine. Have I've never porcupine? eaten it. No, oh, and, and we uh, see them all the time, but I've never eaten it. Uh, yeah, they're like, they're protected up here, unless in a survival situation. Mm, yeah. Okay, yeah, or that makes or sense. damaging property. So yeah, well, if you ever have one damaging your property and you have to kill it and you're allowed <laughs> to legally eat it. I highly recommend it. I've There's heard a that. reason they're protected in quills. I, I've heard that. I've they're heard so that they're good. pretty good. They're yeah. tasty. Eh? Are they fatty or like they look like they're a fat animal, but it's more like the consistency of the muscle tissue. Like squirrels are running around like psychos all day and their muscles are really like, you know, rabbits are the same. It's just really tough, but porcupines, they don't have those like 
whatever the muscles to run really fast, fast, which muscles out there. I don't know. So they just, um, it's not even that it's fatty meat as much as it's like tender meat. Uh, mm. So okay. good. Mm. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, we'll have to work on a season in BC. They're very <laughs> plentiful here. Like uh, honestly, every single season yeah. we run into porcupine issues. I, I, I had a uh, backpack and each, um, I was out in the, on my hunt and he chewed through the, the belt. So I had a, yes. Yeah. Cause it's it, salty and yeah. 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 It's we crazy. use, we also use a, a shelter. It's uh it's for early season. And so there's no bathtub bottom. There's nothing. They can just walk in and out. And I've, I've had them in my tent while I'm in there. They'll, they'll come in the tent Amazing. and it's like, it's uncomfortable. Yeah. I do not like for it. For sure. So Cause they they're really slow, but in the moment they're, they can move really fast. Mm. Like that tail whip is just yeah. impressive. Yeah. No, I, yeah. We need to start eating porcupines. I agree with you. <laughs> cool. Okay. So. How did you get okay? I'm just, this is a total segue, totally off topic. Yeah, and then and then I'm going to go back to to survival stuff. How did you get on the prices right? What the heck? Oh my you, gosh! You, you actually were on the prices right. Well, tell me about that. Yes. Yeah, so I was driving a, a truck, and it was starting to have some issues. Didn't have much money, and I was like, I don't know if I can afford a new truck. And it's really gas is so expensive. I need a new vehicle. How am I going to get one? I'm going to go on the prices right. <laughs> so it was just kind of this little game plan I had. And, uh, you know, my, my cousin was like, Hey, I can, I can get his tickets. He lives in Southern California. He's like, I can get tickets to the show. And I was like, great, get tickets to the show. I'm going to come there and I'm going to win a car. And everyone's like, okay, yeah. You and everyone else in the audience. And I was like, no, it's happening. And, uh, I went and got on and won a car. And <laughs> I was like, told you so. <laughs> I wish there was a better story than that, but it was really, what um, kind of car was it? A Honda Fit, which is hilarious because it's kind of like a, a like yep. a, a little bit of like urban camo for me because no one suspects yep. me when I'm driving <laughs> that funny. car. It gets 41 miles to the gallon though. Wow. That's impressive. Uh, yeah. that's, well, it's all about that mindset again, right? You talk about the mindset. I'm winning this car and you go on and win it. But didn't you in the grand fin- in the finale or whatever, you're going to win something bigger or better? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was going to win a, a Jeep and a tow behind teardrop trailer, but I don't know. I've never... I, I don't know how much any of that stuff is. And it's funny because it makes it look like you can hear what they're saying. I didn't know it was actually a Jeep. I thought it was like some really cheap like SUV thing. So I was like, I don't know what that is. And I gave out a number that was super. Oh, I I saw one. uh, Bill Gates was on Ellen a couple of years ago. And she said, we're going to play a little prices, right? How much do you think this costs? And he had no idea (laughs) and and you wouldn't, right? It's just, it's it's probably funny. We've, we have the same problem, but it's for very different reasons. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, it was great. No, it's funny because Drew Carey actually had found out I was a survivalist who came up to me after the show and he's like, oh, wow, a Jeep and a teardrop trailer. It would have been kind of perfect for you, huh? And I was like, shut up, Drew. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Awesome. Okay. uh, Very cool story. Now uh, let's talk about where you're at today. So host the civilized Mm -hmm. uh, on carbon TV. Um, Mm -hmm. Are you guys in between seasons now? What's tell me what's on the plan for that? Yeah, I, I wrapped up filming from that, and I have uh, one more episode to be released on that. And then, yeah, I'm going to uh, start filming for next year, so it's really exciting. Um, going to gonna get creative this year and kind of do some more uh, out-there adventure kind of stuff. Um, a lot of this year was you know, footage from the past and this, you know, I want to get better at, at filming, especially the self-filming stuff. Man, it's hard. But uh, 
yeah, I'm really excited for this season. So it'll you give it'll us be any cool little teasers out. or you got to keep it quiet. I'm, I'm going to have some cool guests on. I've done the first season mostly uh, myself with the exception of the last episode, which is with my friend uh, Margo, but it'll, it'll have some guests that I'll bring on to kind of mix things up a bit. So cool. look, look for that. Nice. And it's, have you signed on for multiple seasons or you, you had, you know, the, the, your premier season and then this is year two. Do you have more signed mm-hmm. beyond that or how does that work? Um, not yet, but I mean, hopefully, I mean, that, right. that seems like a, a long time. I'm kind of like a plan week by week kind of girl. So it, already planning for a year out. It's like a big <laughs> deal for me. Cool. Let's slow it down. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So you got that season uh, coming out or coming ahead of mm-hmm. you. Um, what else is on the agenda for you? Anything else other than skinning a deer this afternoon or anything else going on or butchering or whatever? But Yeah, I mean, that's really, it's kind of just like, I'll do like a few different, uh, you know, I, I like going to events and getting to meet people. It's always super fun. Um, I'll be going to Shot Show, for example, down in Vegas, and um, there's a few other events. Winter Strong um, with my friend Bert Soren. I'll be I'll be teaching some stuff down there. So it's kind of all events like that that I end up thinking I have all this time, and then I pepper in all this stuff, and then the year's over. So I feel like it's just going to be a lot of filming. But then by the end of it, I have a million other opportunities that have come up that I can't say no to because I'm a sucker for being in the moment okay so, so yeah it's it's fun we're gonna harass you we're gonna get you up here to bc and do some survival stuff definitely. for our sheep hunters definitely so. twist my arm i just told you i can't say no so i'm okay. there yeah. <laughs> okay i've already got you marked in i'll let you know the dates afterwards I, I, I totally i totally want to jump off the rails here i was flipping through your instagram and went oh my god what inspired you to get a alligator oh my gosh yeah so, i know that uh, i had one yes <laughs> Amazing. Yep. Amazing. He was actually uh, an ex's dog that I may have ended up with. Oh. Um, and I was a little stressed because I was like, I, I don't know if my lifestyle fits having a dog. Like I'm on the road all the time, but he's perfect because he, I mean, when we're in sheep country, for example, oh, he yeah. climbs up walls. Oh, like I'm up. terrified. And he's just like, yep. I'm like, you're going to fall. And then he's like, no, I'm not. And just goes up the mm-hmm. wall. So he's perfect for me. His energy level. We have very similar energy levels. Oh, they're great. insane. And uh, he's he's amazing. I'm lucky because he's super friendly with with people. Oh yeah, he kids. He loves yep. their dogs. So man, it's he's protect, a blast. protective and high drive. I was a oh, yeah. I was a handler oh, for yeah. a bunch of years, and I I had oh, I had one and went just just nuts. His name was Storm, and I had uh, I was renting a place in the Lower Mainland back then, and uh, we shared a there was a shared fence fence line that was about four feet high ish. And uh-huh. he would just for for an hour jump back and forth over and over and over just to burn still. just to burn yeah just to burn energy, and yeah I know Same. when they're fearless so loyal but yeah ap- aptly termed maligator and I saw it on yeah saw it on your oh. post and went oh my god that's that's something I need to ask about because they're not a common breed especially right. for somebody that's never had one before and totally they're no and I they're no chihuahua. I'm like, oh, oh burn. <laughs> I, I always I always tell people because people meet him and they love him. And I'm oh, like, yeah. man, they're, they're not pets. Like he's, yep. he works. He's yep. working all the time. And if he's not working, like it takes yep. a, a special kind of like commitment and a special really kind does. of like crazy person to match the craziness of that. Yeah. But, so, yeah. you know, since you guys sheep hunt, I feel like you understand. Crazy. <laughs> I, I've seen people <laughs> post on Facebook. They're like, oh, I, I, I love that dog. I want to get one. I'm like, no, 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 no. You have no idea what yeah. you're doing. You're 
you're basically walking around no. with a loaded gun ready to go yeah. off and you need to know how to control that. It's yeah, hundred yeah, percent. And that takes gun. upkeep too. Oh yeah. It's yeah. Absolutely. But they're amazing. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Best, best thing well, ever. That's cool. That's, that's cool. Yeah, they're awesome. Cool. Well, Hey, Laura, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. It was, uh, you know, I knew it was going to be entertaining. I didn't mm-hmm. think it was going to be this good, but, um, <laughs> I, you know, i just super grateful. And I know we haven't even touched on about a hundred other things that you've done. Um, you know, just there's, there's so many stories. I'd love to hear more, but uh, we'll wrap it up today and hopefully we'll get you back uh, later on. And I'm, I'm not kidding. I'm going to look you up and I'm going to try and get you up here in BC this summer. Yeah, so. yeah absolutely. I'm, I'm serious. We'll make this happen. Yeah. And awesome. yeah. Thank you guys so much for having me. This is super fun. Awesome. Thanks again. And uh, uh, have a great, uh, great winter. And uh, I look forward to more uh, pretty cool stories coming out of you in uh, this winter. So awesome. Thank you. Thank you.